This episode and all of our South by Southwest coverage is brought to you by Vimeo, the new home for 360 video. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I am Emily Booter. I'm Oakley Anderson Moore. I'm John Fusco. It's March 16th, 2017, and on this week's South by Southwest special episode, the inside scoop from our week on the ground in Austin, Texas, for America's coolest film festival. Hi, y'all. Hey, from Austin, my new favorite city. Hey. So as mentioned, we are in Austin, Texas at South by Southwest. At last week's show, uh, we were recording on our way here, and now we've got a week full of stories for you. We've been here all week, and we did all the things we set out to do. We ate lots of tacos, we saw lots of movies and panel discussions, we did lots of interviews, and of course, we had some adventures along the way. We also got lots of great insights on the craft of filmmaking to share with you guys, some of which we will share on the show today. So we'll start with the news from the festival, first of which are the awards, which were announced on Tuesday night. Uh, There are a ton of awards at this festival because there are a ton of films and categories. So for the purposes of the show, we'll just stick to the uh, main feature competition awards. And we were lucky enough to grab some interviews from some of these films as well. So the top winner for narrative features is Most Beautiful Island. Uh, The director's Ana Asensio and Emily spoke with her. Yeah, actually, this was the first interview I did and the first um, film that I saw at, at South by this year. And I remember thinking, this is really strong. It's it's a really unique and strong film that I don't think could have been made in any other fashion. Um, it's, it's a really tense movie. I mentioned it last week on the podcast. And when I did the interview with the director, she had just premiered it. And um, there weren't that many people at the premiere. And she was feeling really vulnerable and nervous because it's based on a personal experience uh, that she had as an undocumented immigrant um, in New York that was very traumatic. And um, she was like, I don't know how I feel about putting my story in front of other people. I don't know. I'm looking at all the other films and thinking, you know, are they doing better than me? And then later that week, she won. And I'm incredibly proud and think she deserved it. Nice. Uh, special jury recognition for breakthrough performance went to a young actor called James Friedson Jackson from The Strange Ones. I actually interviewed the directors of that film, and um, they talked about the challenge of finding a young guy to play this movie because it the entire script really features two guys, and one of them is this, this uh, young, relatively untested actor. And what was so impressive about him Uh, is that the kind of the role that he had to play was very meaty, very dark, and the kind of thing where you you could see your friends from school kind of like making fun of you for taking a role like this because there's some pretty vulnerable, taboo-y, subject-y stuff in it. And I won't give that away because it kind of, it might reveal too much about the film, but suffice to say that um, he had to do some things that might be uncomfortable for someone his age or any age. And I have to say, one of my favorite lines from the interview was that they said when they knew that this guy was the guy, they kind of talked him through it in the like during casting when when they were getting down to the wire and it was like close and it was like, this is probably our guy. They had a conversation with him and they were like, look, you know, there's some stuff in here that's tough. You know, are you comfortable with that? And he's basically was like, have you been in eighth grade? Like eighth grade is tough. And they were like, you're our guy. So congratulations to uh, James Friedson Jackson. 
Um, also, the special jury recognition for best ensemble went to A Bad Idea Gone Wrong, and that ensemble cast consists of Matt Jones, Eleanor Pienta, Will Rogers, Johnny Mars, Sam Aidson, and Jenny Marie Jemison. Who wants to tell us about the Documentary Feature Competition Awards? I do. So, Documentary Feature Competition Award went to this fantastic documentary called The Work, and I had the privilege of sitting down with the director, Jairus McLeary, along with his brothers, Eon and Miles, uh, who also helped make the film, because it was a real family affair. The documentary is set in Folsom Prison. Wow. So, The Work is, is the word for this event that they have, where they have... People from the outside, men, come in to sit with inmates on the inside and they go through something of a sort of like psychological work on themselves. And it's a, you know, very simple, basically capturing of this event, but it's so powerful from the very beginning to the end because you've got people in here who some of them have, you know, committed very deep crimes and are in there for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Some of them are in there for life. And you see both the people on the outside and the people on the inside go through these just extraordinary transformations that really um, encapsulate a lot of struggles um, that humanity faces on a whole. And it kind of just makes you rethink the whole rehabilitation prison thing. Um, not, it's not really a film that's like, oh, it doesn't advocate any aspect of a rehabilitation. But, uh, but I should point out that people that go through this program also have almost a 0% recidivism. Wow, which is almost that's incredible. Un- yeah, unheard of in prison system with few exceptions. Did they talk about how they got access to shoot in Folsom Prison? Because that in itself is like a logistical nightmare. It was not easy. They had to go through a lot of channels and it was almost some, there were some few dangerous times where everyone on crew had to follow a certain protocol. For example, if a man was running around on crew, this, you know, a guard in a tower would be radioing in like, I have my gun pointed at this guy running. I don't know who this guy is. You know, so it was dangerous. It took them a long time. But their access revolved around Jairus' father, who's who has been going through this program for a really long time. He and they're all very close with the people who founded this program. Oh. So it's really an inside, like an inside job, and they did a great job. And I really think that uh, anyone who sees it's going to just be really moved from beginning to end. Cool. The Special Jury Recognition for Excellence in Observational Cinema, also a documentary award, went to Mainland by Mia Wang. And the Special Jury Recognition for Excellence in Documentary Storytelling went to I Am Another You by Nanfu Wang, no relation. That film, I Am Another You, also won the Chicken and Egg Award, which is uh, one of the few cash awards at the festival. It's a $15,000 award sponsored by Luna Bars. So congratulations, Nanfu. I actually interviewed her about I Am Another You, and... Um, it was it's kind of a cool, no film schooly type story, although she was in film school. But in terms of, of just kind of doing your projects and following your heart when you haven't been fully trained yet, she started this documentary her first semester in film school. And then she didn't even know it really was going to be a film. She was just kind of filming stuff and exploring. And then she took time off from this film to make her second film, Hooligan Sparrow, which she started third semester in film school. And then... Became, worked on it for two years and it became a shortlisted uh, Oscar film last year. And then she came back to this film, I Am Another You, which, because it had been several years later, the story took a whole other turn than she ever expected. And now that film's complete and it's here in South by Southwest. And she really was, you know, again, just sort of like following her instincts, getting out there and making films, even though she didn't have her full training yet and everything else. And she was, she's a Chinese filmmaker new to the States and was just like, I'm going to do this in part because of the freedom she suddenly had that she never had in China. And I think that's something maybe we all take 
for granted. Like, it's a real privilege to be able to run out and make a film whenever the hell we want and to shoot on the streets and to not be arrested. And um, I took some inspiration from that for sure. And now for everyone's favorite segment, The Bottom Line with Emily Booter. Welcome to The Bottom Line here from Austin, Texas, East (laughs) Austin, the Bushwick of the Austin Central area. Um, So if the bottom line was a thick Sharpie at Sundance, it is actually quite a scant pencil scribble at South by Southwest. This is because... nice allusion. (laughs) This is because this is not an acquisition fest. It's where a lot of new directors break out, um, oftentimes with their first films, and um, they don't necessarily always get distribution. And if they do, the deals happen later. Kino Lerber picked up Gabe Klinger's romantic drama, Porto, which features Anton Yelkin in one of his final final roles. And Magnolia Snatched Lemon, Janiska Bravo's controversial Sundance premiere, which was screening in the spotlight section. And that's it for the bottom line. Thanks for tuning in. See you later. Definitely a pencil line, but there's been some other news at the festival, right? Oh, yes. Okay, so there was um, quite an interesting occurrence this year at the festival, I actually ran into my two friends who were publicists last night. They own a company together and I asked them how their festival was just expecting to have some light chit chat. Turned out that they were behind the publicity for this documentary called Stranger Fruit. Um, and they told me they had no idea that they had two films at Sundance that they repped and they had no idea that Stranger Fruit would become major headline news just days into the festival. Jason Pollock followed the aftermath of the Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson. And before the festival, Pollock told the filmmakers, basically, I have this video that's in my documentary and it's going to break the news cycle. And they were like, what are you talking about? Which video? They didn't really know what he was talking about. Um, it turns out that the, the video shows surveillance footage that was never before seen um, from a grocery store that Michael Brown visited the morning before he was shot by Officer Wilson. Wilson was ultimately not charged, as you may know, and according to Pollock, his footage calls that decision into question and sheds some new light upon the tactics of the prosecution there. Um, The St. Louis County Police Department briefly mentioned Mr. Brown's early morning visit to the store in a lengthy report on the case, which tipped Mr. Pollock off to the existence of this video, which he was able to then track down. Pollock told the New York Times, they destroyed Michael's character with the tape, and they didn't show us what actually happened. So this shows their intention to make him look bad and shows suppression of evidence. Needless to say, it was all over the news the first week of the festival. So moving on from the kind of newsier stuff, I would love to hear just about everybody's impressions generally. As we mentioned last week, this was John and Emily's first ever South by Southwest. It's Oakley's like third or fourth. It's my fifth. Or fifth. (laughs) It's my fifth. Oh, good God. Don't get it twisted. (laughs) And this whole time, I've been saying it's my 10th, but I looked at our script from last year uh, for this very same show, which was one of the first festival indie film weeklies we recorded. And last year was my 10th. So surprise, 11th. (laughs) Into decade number two. Um, So I blabbed about it a lot before we got here. Now, what did you guys think? I thought this, I mean, this was far and away my favorite festival of the entire festival circuit. It is so energizing. There's so much going on. And it's actually really nice to have film be only a small part of a bigger picture at a festival. Oftentimes at festivals, you can feel like, you know, it's this microcosm of the film industry and everything is so self-important and, uh, you know, everyone's really stressed out. And at this festival, we were next to the music and the interactive sections, which were um, also 
featured in many of the panels at the convention center. And it felt like film was a small, you know, important part of a larger picture. And I think that kind of led to a more chill vibe, as they say here in Austin. <laughs> well, it's funny. I was going to ask this at the end of the show, but since you kind of went right it right there, I'd be curious to hear from both you guys, too, from everybody here, like, do you think that's actually a good thing for filmmakers? Like, it makes it super fun for us, but if, like, putting ourselves in the shoes of a filmmaker who had a film at this festival, do you think it's good or bad or neither that, like, film is kind of a... a lighter emphasis among other things i mean i i remember you guys talking about how south by wasn't like really the filmmakers festival anymore last year and that's how that whole that that was kind of the central theme of the podcast from Mm -hmm. last year and i don't know i kind of really disagree with that i've felt more of a community here i think Mm. um as far as what emily was talking about as as being like unpretentious and like it's been easy. I'm not a great networker, but it's been easy for me to talk to people. Because you which have is, real conversations here. Yeah, you you really do have real conversations here, and it's it's not really about you know like who you know or like industry positioning. In, yeah, it's it's instead it's more about like how you as a young filmmaker or an emerging filmmaker can sort of um, evolve the medium, mm. um, which is a really interesting thing. And you know, the first couple panels I went to. We're all about about content creation, basically, you know, with, with branded branded content and like working with marketing companies or companies using videos to market their own stuff. And so, like, I was a little hesitant at first. Um, as a serious content maker. Yeah, as a serious content ma- maker. <laughs> a SAG-approved content maker. <laughs> yeah, and because I, I didn't really agree with that message. Because I don't, I don't know. I like, I don't think any uh, filmmakers feel great about you know the con- giant convergence of ads and video are sort of becoming synonymous. So I was, so I was worried that that's what the whole festival was going to be about. But then the movies I saw and the directors that I talked to, like, were so original and yeah. like. Mm unique and like progressive in a sense and personal yeah and personal that it totally negated any of those worries that i'd had about like making videos for marketing purposes uh sort of thing which is what i i thought um which is what i thought you guys were talking about last year and like even that stuff isn't isn't bad for filmmakers like we do need to figure out how to make a living so paying attention to some of those sessions about how you might be able to make money making films isn't bad I don't think for filmmakers. No, I mean, I don't, yeah, I I guess it was more uh, doing work as a contractor and not really having freedom uh, to do what you want as a filmmaker versus like having the confidence to be as free as you want with your story, which is what I saw in a lot of films here. Yeah, I mean, to to jump into especially the first part of what you said about being a filmmaker-friendly festival. I mean, I've been here, this is my fifth year, and I've been doing interviews with filmmakers for No Film School. Right. This is my fifth year in the road with that specific thing. And it, I think it's absolutely a filmmaker-friendly festival in the sense of the program films that, you know, Sundance doesn't program because Sundance has a very particular type of cura- curation that they do. And South By and even the industry people here will say this and did say this at some panels. Like South By is where we look to see films that are more idiosyncratic or have something specific to a genre, something that maybe wasn't considered highbrow enough to play at Sundance. I, I don't know, the, the, you know, what, whatever you would call it, but this is definitely the festival where, you know, the auteurs or the specific visions are allowed to flourish and are programmed. I definitely think that's the case. I think the, 
the one thing that is the biggest challenge that goes hand in hand with that is South by that it's not changed is that it's the scale of the festival is so huge and it is exciting to have like you know interactive people and entrepreneurs here with music people because you don't have to feel so the perspective it remains more realistic about the importance of film into the bigger picture but the scale of the of the festival is so large that as a small filmmaker it can be it can be very difficult um to thrive so like i think that the filmmakers I think they could, if they knew that before their premiere, it would help them because there's not every yeah, festival so they should premiere. all listen to Indie Film Weekly. They should sure. all listen. <laughs> yeah, because the thing is, you know, when you come here, there are so many films playing. Not every film will sell out, which is almost just preposterous to think about. But it's true. There are so many films playing and not a lot of them get a lot of heat and not a lot of them have sold out screenings. And that's just kind of crazy to think about at a huge festival like this, that could be happening. So I think it's a, a great uh, playground for filmmakers really interested in pursuing a specific vision that's maybe very original, but it's really hard to stand out. And if you could just know that ahead of time, you could be, and you, you won't be taken by surprise. Oh, you can plan your marketing and publicity game in advance. Yes. And like what I'm hearing from everybody and, and noticing is that like, it's not really where you want to come to get acquired, which is a change. I mean, 10 years ago, you wanted to come here to get acquired it's not really where you come to get acquired it's not necessarily where you come to break out in the national scene but it's a filmmaker friendly festival in that it's literally friendly like it's a good place to network meet other filmmakers potential collaborators meet people like us who can write about your film and are here are here because we care but not necessarily the film where you the festival where you take your like kind of career to a certain kind of I don't even know the word, like professional level that you might get out of having it at a Sundance or a TIFF or some festival that's well, wholly focused I mean, on films. I don't know if I agree yeah, with that. Yeah, I don't that. know if I agree because I think, <laughs> I think like if you're, if, you know, just because your film wasn't acquired, it, it doesn't mean that like you're not, your professional career won't launch here. You know what I mean? Like people can come here and get to know, get to know other, you know, agents or managers that, this could be the catalyst for your professional career rather than like having some movie that you made for like 15, like $1,500. Uh, for example, one of the, one of the people that I directed uh, be the thing that is your career. It will serve as the launching off point for your career. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't think maybe, and maybe it's not like such a great idea to go into a festival with like trying to make it, with the, the sole intention of like getting it acquired, you know, your picture acquired. Yeah, I mean, everyone we, wants it to get acquired. Yeah. And to Liz's point, it is true. I mean, there's not like a lot of bidding wars going on the way there are. So, I mean, that's, that's completely true, mm -hmm. but it does launch your career in, in a way that an, a smaller festival or like a Tribeca festival may not do. Mm -hmm. And I guess a good example of that I might give as um, the filmmakers of Bill Nye Science Guy. So I, um, David Alvarado and Jason Sisberg, they, I met them a couple years ago when they had their first film here, The Immortalists. And they were just like me, nobodies, uh, with their first feature. And they were plucked from obscurity and played at South By. And the film, you know, uh, it was a great uh, documentary, didn't exactly break onto the national level. But from there, they met their producer. And this year, they're at the festival with a documentary featuring Bill Nye, one of the most famous American, you know, science television personalities that everyone grew up on. And like they 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 sold out the Vimeo theater and their film is like, it, it it's definitely getting launched into the national arena. Mm -hmm. But that was a process that, and they met Bill Nye actually at South by when they shot the immortalists oh, or cool. when they brought the immortals, he, 
here. So it launched it for them, but it was a slower path because they didn't get like a bidding war distribution right. where they got picked up. But that also get back to, gets back to what John said and what we say at a lot of these festivals is so much of it if it is about networking and if you're at like a Sundance, it might feel kind of intimidating on the one hand it's positive because as John pointed out last year, everybody's there for film and there's something really powerful in that. Whereas here they're not necessarily, I'll give an example. Like I went to this, um, keynote or not a keynote, but a big address by Frank Oz, which I'll talk a little bit about later. He's one of my heroes. So it was freaking awesome. But also it was in this huge ballroom. So the way the conference center works is that there are these kind of compartmentalized conference center rooms that can open and close. So sometimes they turn a ballroom A, B, C, and D into four rooms. And sometimes they open that all up. So there's one huge speaker in there. So Frank Oz was in in that type of room where, a, where four conference rooms were put together in one. So there were several hundred people in there and Frank Oz addressed the crowd and said, okay, so you're all filmmakers, right? And I'm here to talk about filmmaking. Raise your hand if you're a director. And of probably 400 people, three people raised their hands. And I was shocked. I was like, what has happened to this festival? So for me, it was kind of eye-opening like in terms of like the like demographics or like the makeup of the crowd. Not as many film people as there used to be. But on the flip side of that, it might actually work to our favor as filmmakers because to your all's points like it makes that networking the film-based networking feel like hey the people who are here are like really interested to be here they really care about films like it's a smaller community maybe among a big community and like it means something to be here i don't know yeah and i'll just add to piggyback off oakley's story um a few of my friends that are here had a short in the festival and they met with a 24. So like it's production companies, distribution companies, managers, agents, they're all here and they're all looking to find new talent. So yeah. Okay. So of course the festival gives awards. Um, and usually on the shows after the festivals, we talk about our favorite films, but I thought it would be fun this time to give our own awards. Um, I'd love everybody to choose, choose a film to award who wants to go first. I'll go first. Um, so my award is best film with a preposterous premise. Uh, <laughs> and that award goes to Silvio, which is a film by Kentucker Oddly and Albert Burney. The premise is a gorilla goes through a regular life trying to make the art he wants to do on a local cable TV access show. And that sounds ridiculous because there's literally a man in a girl suit throughout the whole movie and he's the main character. So it just sounds preposterous. And I had no idea what to expect going into it because I did. it's based on a vine called Silvio, which if you saw vine, it was actually a pretty delightful collection, like a use use of the whole vine platform. But if you haven't seen it and you don't know the character Silvio, you're just like, what the hell is that? <laughs> and how could you possibly have a feature film? But I saw it and I was surprised. It's really they did a really great job. It's really a film about being an artist in a lot of ways and dealing with fame and commercialization. Perfect themes for showing a film at South by Southwest in so many ways. Um, it, they did a really great job and it's it's preposterous and great. And the gorilla came to the Alamo Draft House party on day one. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was going to say they also did a good job with that kind of viral marketing because they had that dang gorilla all over the festival. Yeah, he. I saw him without... I, I, I hope I'm not ruining anyone's magical experience, but I did see the gorilla without his gorilla head on. <laughs> oh, no, Oakley. <laughs> but yeah, and Silvio the Vine, I mean, had, you know, 
uh, you know, it was super popular. And that's a very interesting premise to, to make a film from. One which you would think like, oh, great. So you had a popular thing and they turn it into feature, but it actually works really well for this film. All right. Well, my award goes to the bravest movie at the festival. And I actually gave it, it's a tie. It's a toss up between Dara Zhu and Flesh and Blood. Mm. Dara Zhu is a narrative and Flesh and Blood is a docu-fiction uh, hybrid. So Dara Zhu is about, it's the personal life story of a man who is a first generation Nigerian immigrant and um, the pressures that he faces to uphold his tradition, take care and pay for his family, but also become um, an intellectual in American society. He went to Harvard, then he goes to work on Wall Street, but he faces a lot of racism, a ton of pressure, and he winds up breaking. Um, and the film is is really rough to watch because you see, you it's like a house of cards toppling, you know, you see everything that leads up to his breaking point and you understand why he does break. Um, I cried. I thought it was really, really, really brave story. And the filmmaker, I interviewed him too, so you can look out for that. What's uh, his name? Next week. Anthony Ona is the filmmaker. Then Flesh and Blood is also about a crazy personal life story. Um, a man who grew up on the streets with his mother. Um, he, they were homeless for maybe five years, 10 years. And um, he then he became addicted to an unnamed drug, went to prison and um, was released. And the film starts as he's released from prison and he is trying to confront his demons and get an honest job, make a good life for himself. Um, and he cast his mom and his brother who has autism, um, as the two other main characters. And everything is, seems 100% authentic. But when I interviewed him, I found out that half of it wasn't, half of it was scripted. It was just them playing themselves, but scripted. Um, and that interview was also fascinating. So two really brave movies, people putting their entire souls and hearts out onto the screen and worth seeing. Cool. The film award that I'm giving is called John Fusco's award for a film made entirely by one person. (laughs) And it goes to Parker Smith this year. He wrote and well, I mean, I want to say wrote, but it's really a documentary. So he basically, uh, produced, shot, starred, and crewed this entire film called Ramblin' Freak by himself, not having very much experience um, filming. He'd never made uh, any sort of, uh, well, definitely no feature before, but he'd made a few shorts before that none of them were anything like consequential. But this film that he made was really, really affecting and really powerful. He has the idea to go across country and um, shoot basically something, a documentary of some sort about his road trip with his cat. Um, Can't forget the cat. Yeah, well, the cat is a very important character. Cats love road trips. <laughs> they, apparently not. But um, <laughs> when he bought the camera off of some person in e- on eBay, uh, the DBX100B, they sent him, had a tape that was still inside it. And on that tape was a sort of 15 minute rehearsal tape of this, uh, old bodybuilder, um, who's kind of like a, just a crazy dude. So he decides to actually turn his road trip movie into this, uh, search for this bodybuilder. 
And at the same time, he goes into a more personal story about how his sisters have this rare disease. I don't remember the exact medical term for it, but it is uh, referred to often as EB, um, which basically means that their skin uh, doesn't stay attached to their body. Oh my God. And then they go anywhere? No, they can't. Yeah, it's it's, oh it's a real thing. I've heard of this. Yeah, so like what what ends up happening is they um they have to like bandage their entire body because if there's any sort of uh I guess abrasion or anything, they just won't <laughs> the skin will like go and they get blisters oh, and it's just like Lord. a really terrible and graphic uh disease. So it's this story of him coming to terms with uh I'm not going to say what happens, but with what it, whatever happens with his sister, and uh, eventually how that like melds in with the story of this bodybuilder is really crazy, and it's 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 amazing that he just did the whole thing by himself. Um, Sounds like a well-deserved John Fusco film entirely done by one person award. Yeah, and I I did a roundtable, and the producer of Ramble Freak was mm-hmm. on it, and it's very exciting to hear his process because Parker Parker, the director, really just approached him out of the blue and had no experience and on the producer on Instagram <laughs> and the producer started by sending him a laptop with which he could edit the yeah, film on. He couldn't edit wow. or like he didn't have a computer to yeah. edit. So when the producer asked him um if he could see a cut, he was like, Yeah, you could see it in like two or three years when I have enough money for a computer. <laughs> yeah. And then so the producer wait, sent that's him a laptop. Some so you have the director version of that and then the producer documentary producer roundtable uh, podcast you get the producer side of yeah, working so, on that film which would be both interesting and i interviewed the doc, uh parker too so that'll be uh, a podcast that's it was a really good podcast so stay tuned so on the total flip side of that award mine goes to best team effort um for the blood is at the doorstep by eric leung and hi eric he Yay. listens to the podcast and we all got to meet him in person here at the festival. So that was pretty exciting and it did not influence this award. Um, so uh, Eric is also a documentary filmmaker and he started his film as a one man effort similar to Ramblin' Freak. But, you know, we're always talking on the show um, and in our articles about how important it is to like rally people around your film, whether they're physically working on it or just helping promote it or whatever it is. And Eric did an amazing job of that. He started this film. He didn't know what he was getting into. He lived in Milwaukee where it happened. And he's like, I just got to start covering this because the incident it covers is um, the shooting of Dontre Hamilton. You may have heard him, uh, about him in the news. It wasn't one of the, you know, certainly not like Michael Brown in terms of these um, terrible police violence cases, but a big case where uh, a, an unarmed black man who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia was shot 14 times and killed by a Milwaukee police officer in the middle of the afternoon. And the police officer was just responding to a non-emergency wellness check. Like someone was calling in and saying, Hey, there's somebody sleeping on the street. And in the end, this officer shot and killed this young man many, many times. And the story is different than some of the other documentaries around this issue in that it really focuses on Dante's family and how they responded to the crisis and dealt with it over the years and sort of became like unwitting activists. They'd never done activism. They'd never been involved in like civic matters. And it was more out of their own despair at like nobody's freaking helping us. We better do something ourselves. And it was very, very moving. And the reason why I presented it with this uh, highly prestigious award is that um, 
again, Eric started the film by himself, and he had to, first of all, rally this family who was in one of their greatest crisis periods to get on board and be involved. Um, And then he made the film over several years as this case went on and on, and he had to get the whole kind of Milwaukee activism community on board. And in the end, he had 400 hours of footage, and he had to enlist an editor unpaid at first to help sort all of that out. And he had producers and other camera people and all these folks from the Milwaukee film community get on board just because they believed in it and they believed in him to the point where at the screening I went to here at South by Southwest, there were 20 people who came all the way from Milwaukee just to be at that screening and be involved. So I congratulate Eric, not only on the film, but on doing the thing that's hard for a lot of us filmmakers, which is going out and asking for help. And the family um, actually came to our no film school party. So I got to meet them. They are brave and inspiring. And I have to say like some of these these um, contemporary issues in the United States lately have just felt sort of like, well, what the hell can be done about it? What can we possibly do about these seemingly intractable issues? And I'm not even a person who's involved. So to see a family who was directly affected by it and still has the strength to get out there and try to make change was absolutely, you know, motivating. And they're nice people too. We enjoyed having you guys at a party. Life happens in 360 degrees, and now on Vimeo, so do your videos. Now you can upload, watch, and even sell your 360 videos on Vimeo. Vimeo 360 means immersive eye candy, immersive adventures, and immersive storytelling from the world's best filmmakers. Plus, Vimeo has tons of helpful resources for all experience levels. You can check out how to shoot, how to edit, and even roundups of the best 360 video gear. Join the new home for 360 video at vimeo.com slash 360. So what was the best interview that you guys did this festival? There are so many good ones. It's hard to, it feels unfair to choose. Yeah, there were a lot of good interviews this year. Yeah. So. And good films, which is cool. Yeah. And maybe it goes with that same vibe we were talking about, about the community and people feeling comfortable here talking to us and others. Yeah. I guess I'd say, you know, I hate to again single out just one, but I had a really great interview this morning with Joe Martin, who is an up-and-coming young British filmmaker who has a film at the festival called Us and Them. And his film is, is um, you know, a very kind of like, I don't know, it has like a punk rock feel to it. It's um, A lot of it centers around the class awareness and frustration that led us to things like Brexit and the election of Donald Trump and the film, which is a narrative is, is very interestingly done. And so we had a lot of fun talking about that and class warfare and how DIY filmmaking fits into that. And we talked about Alan Clark and Tuva Bian. It was a really cool conversation. And uh, I'm, I was, I'm excited to see sort of how his work is received and where he goes from there. And it's always interesting, even in Austin, Texas, to get to talk to someone who's coming from an international film scene and feeling the effects of what's going on in the culture at large and how that's being reflected into the filmmaking coming out of filmmakers with their own unique viewpoints on those, on those movements. Yeah, I, it was so hard to choose just one. So I kind of stayed away from... Uh, choosing just one um i just <laughs> that's decided cheating, yeah oh. <laughs> well i mean not not in this i did choose one in the sense of one interview but not for one movie I'm so i'm like, giving you the liz nord best choosing uh award that's okay i gave myself the john fusco best choosing award which is 
Uh, not as highly coveted, but you know. well, <laughs> let's face it. Was, I guess that's a matter of opinion, man. So, my best interview—not my best interview, my my one of one of my favorite interviews—was uh, the sequel to the Sundance How to Get Your Short into Sundance podcast, which is How to Get Your Midnight Short into the South by Southwest podcast. Um, because we were talking about earlier, you know the. Uh, how genre is sort of more accepted here. Uh, Midnight shorts in that sense are also just like very crazy as well. So I got together with uh, a three, three, uh, three short films crews, uh, two co-directors, a, co- a director and a DP and a producer on their respective uh, films. And it was just really easy. It was just really uh, interesting to talk about even more than shorts, just like what midnight shorts mean for a filmmaker, uh, the the risks that people take with those shorts are so much bigger than uh, for the for the most part than other shorts that are made, and it's like focusing. So it's like focusing on uh, themes of shorts and then just like exploding them essentially, or f- focusing on your own neuroses and exploding them. Exploding. To, yeah, to like a like a the nth degree. Um, yeah, but, and, and then the midnight shorts category was just like very strong here this year. Uh, so I think we got, um, three of the best on the podcast and, uh, stay tuned for that. Cause it's, it's, uh, it's a great discussion. My favorite interview was probably with also my favorite film of the festival called, uh, the relation trip by Renee Felice Smith and CA Gabriel. You might recognize her name because she is one of the leads on the show NCIS Los Angeles and her partner in crime for the film and partner in life, C.A. Gabriel, um, is a uh, composer who composes for all kinds of films and commercials. Um, It's an utterly charming film where basically an entire relationship accelerates from meeting to marriage to breakup over the course of one weekend. Um, And it was so cool because they were both really, really candid um, and clearly comfortable with each other as a couple, but because they had have had these other roles in the industry where they're always working to see other people's visions through, this was the chance to see their own vision, um, which is kind of like what John was saying earlier about people here, you know, really being here with films that had their kind of like own unique take to uh, to share. And this film really was unique because it could have just been kind of like a corny like romantic comedy, but it gets like super out there and creative. It was like they took every thing they ever wanted to try in a film and put it in this movie, um, like with practical effects and a puppet and like stop motion animation and all this stuff. Um, And the takeaway I got from them in terms of like advice for, for you all and for us all was to kind of like really prioritize the special things that you want to happen in your film. So in their case, they shot this entire feature in 16 days. Um, and what in one of the scenes, there's like a stop motion animation, human life-sized cocoon that this couple is wrapped in and break out of. And they only had one chance to sort of make the cocoon and get the shots, the, the stop motion shots. And it took like five or six hours. So out of a 16 day shoot, they took six hours to make a cocoon stop motion that involved both of the lead actors and the whole entire shot in the movie is like 11 seconds long, 
But it's this like pivotal scene and they had made the decision like this is going to be a priority even though it's time consuming. And I think like those are the kind of decisions you have to make in advance so that when your days are running, you know, over, which they always do, you're like, this is a thing that we know we're going to take the time to do. And I loved that they uh, they shared that part of their process. Emily, what was your best interview? My best interview was actually with a South by Southwest stalwart. Um, you may know him by the name of Joe Swanberg. He is sort of the micro-budget indie uh, maven in this town, besides Richard Linklater, of course. He's here with a film this year called Win It All, which I didn't expect to love as much as I did. It's a pretty conventional film by his standards because he usually makes really rambling mumblecore uh, indie pieces that, you know, don't necessarily have a, a very tight story or no more character pieces. But um, this one had a very clear three-act structure. It was really funny. It, it retained his, the grittiness and the um, strong characters of his old work, but it had a very tight script. And, uh, and by those means, it was, it was his most conventional commercial movie. Um, so I was doubting it, but nope, it's great. So uh, I spoke to him and the movie star, Jake Johnson, who is a a hilarious guy who clearly brought a lot of himself to the role. Um, And Joe Swanberg came up directing $5,000 movies and he's been making micro budgets for a long time. So this being a Netflix financed movie, it had a a pretty good budget, but it was still pretty much low budget. Um, And he shared with me some of the interesting lessons he got from film school, which I will read to you right now. This is a quote from Swanberg. Having gone to film school and having worked really hard on a lot of really bad movies, and my own movies I'm talking about, when I got out of film school, I was like, quote, something is wrong here. Basically, it's not through lack of effort, it's not through lack of passion, but something's missing because I'm watching us drop from exhaustion from having worked so hard, but none of these movies are working. What's the disconnect? So when I got out of film school, I thought, okay, If I want to be a filmmaker, I've got to start making movies. And what do I unlearn from film school? These crews having 15 people standing around like this, leaning on the wall, watching everyone work is not helping. What if I got rid of these people and it was just three people on set? And what if those three people were also the actors in the movie? So whoever wasn't acting was holding a boom and we're all switching jobs. I was just trying stuff because I was like, the other things didn't work. And I watched those results and they worked. That's actually a good segue into my uh, favorite panel that I attended. Go for it. So I actually just released um, my sort of recap of this panel yesterday, but it was a keynote on which Gareth Edwards uh, spoke. And he talked about one of the things that he talked about actually was exactly that. One of the first productions that he actually got a chance at directing, um, he was shooting this large scale BBC uh, biography on Attila the Hun. And they shot it somewhere in Asia, uh, some beautiful landscape. And he was out on on set shooting and he noticed like the light falling on a hill in a particular way. And he was like, oh, okay. He turned to his producer and was like, oh, okay, like, let's, uh, let's, let's get the shot over here. But since he had a crew of like 100 people on this epic BBC uh, documentary, it was just totally impossible. The producer told him that would take way too long. So he was basically like, so if we didn't have all these people, then it would be possible. And the producer was like, yeah. And... So he decided to take that philosophy into his first feature, 
which the producer he was talking to actually came on to produce. So that was only one of the many things that he uh, gave insight to um, on his keynote. And, you know, I'm not a huge fan of his work, to be honest. I I, I thought Monsters was okay. Uh, Godzilla, I liked the fight scene, but otherwise I thought it was pretty weak as far as the story goes. And Rogue One wasn't my favorite Star Wars movie, but, you know, it was a good effort. And also, like, a very challenging thing to do as a director to try and take star wars and uh sort of tell your own story with it a and just to meet fan expectations b it's a very nerve-wracking thing to do but he was a really humble down-to-earth guy who went to film school and then as soon as he got out of film school he realized that he wasn't going to be able to direct because he kept taking his pit, his shorts and stuff to production houses and they were all just like, Oh, this is shit. So <laughs> he went back to his parents' house and taught himself how to use visual effects software on his computer and really dedicated, um, that portion of his life to learning that skill set. Just, just first to kind of screw around, like he would just put, uh, dinosaurs and robots and shorts in his parents, uh, like driveway. So he would bring these shorts around to the production houses in order to get directing jobs. And of course the production houses were like, Oh, uh, this is pretty fucking bad. But whenever they would come to the parts with the robots or dinosaurs, they'd be like, hold on. What the hell? Like, how did you do this? Like mm, you, you can't have a knack with robots and dinosaurs. Exactly. Basically. And, and this was in the early night, like the nineties, like the mid nineties around when Jurassic park was, had first come out. And he, they were like, we're paying production houses hundreds of thousands of dollars to be able to do what you're doing on Windows 95 hmm. in your parents' bedroom. So he got a job that way um, and then basically just worked his way up the ladder making VFX for stuff until he realized that he couldn't be doing VFX anymore because it was detracting him from his dream of becoming a director. So he eventually was just like, oh, I'm not doing VFX anymore. I am a director now and use that as leverage to make films for BBC. And then he made his first feature, which got picked up at South by Southwest. Uh, it was one of the only festivals to pick up Monsters. And then from there, he had uh, a director's agent who also was uh, representing like Tim Burton and Quentin Tarantino and all these people. And he from there, it was just like off to the races. He got a screening and meetings in LA over like a hundred meetings in two weeks. Wow. And as soon as he watched, walked into legendary, uh, pictures conference room or, or hallway or whatever, the head studio exec at legendary was basically just like, what are you doing the rest of this week? And, um, Gareth was like, Oh, you know, just take taking meetings, whatever. And legendary was like, cancel all your meetings. We're going to finance every film you ever make from now on. Are you freaking kidding me? Holy yeah. crap. So from it, dinos in the driveway. Yeah. And it's interesting because legendary was actually involved with, uh, with Jurassic park. Um, and of course they made the Godzilla movie, but Kathleen Kennedy was also involved in Jurassic park. And eventually Gareth Edwards went on to make the new star Wars movie. So it, it was all, it was just a really great, inspiring speech. Yeah. I wrote an article about it and the entire video is actually included in that article. So if you have like an hour to spare, it's a really entertaining talk and I would just watch it if I were you. So that, that was uh, that was the best panel that I went to. I also, I love that, you know, this guy is now directing some of the biggest budget films out of Hollywood and that his advice to all of us is like, 
be economical. Like, don't get bigger, get smaller, yeah. get more nimble, get more indie almost. One thing that was also really interesting was he, on Star Wars Rogue One, he went back to his first original philosophy, which was like, if I'm going to have time on a set, I want to be fully adaptable and I want to be able to shoot uh, wherever I want without right. having to make moves. So what he did is he actually made every set on Star Wars a 360 degree set so he could easily move around the set. But then he realized that there was all this crew standing around in the background. Right. So what do you think he did? Shot him. He dressed them up in Star Wars costumes. No. And like creature costumes. Oh, that's so cool. And like rebel uni- alliance uniforms. That is such a cool BTS tidbit. Yeah, and one more. You know B- how I like tidbits. Here, here's another BTS tidbit um, <laughs> that I didn't include in the article because I was trying to focus more on his uh, journey. But in in the in the final days of the or not the final day, well, yeah, the final days of pre-production, as they were writing the script, the Kathleen Kennedy and the studio, the Disney people, came up to him and were like, "You still need a name for this last planet." And so he was like, "Okay, I'll, I'll go off and think on it." So he went to Starbucks. And he, you know, gave them his name, was waiting for the coffee, got the coffee, and on the coffee cup was written Scarith instead of Gareth. And Scarith is the final planet where that whole that whole uh, <laughs> battle scene ends up happening. So that's how he got that name, which is pretty funny. That's very funny. Another plus in terms of South by Southwest for filmmakers is that it is a good place to get inspired. And I hear that word again and again, not just from film people, but like from tech people as well, because they come here and sort of see the latest and greatest innovations that are happening and and feel excited and think about their own work. And another thing that differentiates this festival from others, which we uh, mentioned last week, is that there's almost as many panel discussions as there are films. Most of them these days aren't directly film related, but still there are hundreds of talks to go to basically for whatever you're interested in, even if it's this kind of, you know, as big as a major director or as small as, you know, the minutia of like Emily went to one about designing your movie poster. So it kind of really runs the gamut. Um, And actually even Joe Swanberg, who Emily just mentioned was a keynote speaker here last year. And we did a post, we'll link to it in the podcast post this week about like how he made seven features in a single year. And that in itself is really inspiring. And my favorite panel was also one of those kind of like high level inspiration ones um, that I mentioned earlier in the podcast today with Frank Oz. Um, And it was it was moderated by Leonard Maltin, who's, you know, one of our great film historians and majorly known critics. Um, So the reason Frank Oz was here is that he has a, a film called Muppet Guys Talking with the subtitle Secrets Behind the Show, The Whole World Watched. They obviously dedicated an entire hour just to him because he has such a prolific career and so much to say. So many of us know Frank Oz because of his beloved characters like Yoda, speaking of Star Wars, and Miss Piggy and Fozzie Bear. But what the panel reminded me is that he's also directed over a dozen films, including Little Shop of Horrors and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and these films that are like, you know, pivotal to my youth. Um, and he, he also gave, he gave a lot of really good practical advice that I will write up um, when I write the panel. Like one I think you'll appreciate, John, is that he said, 
every director should get in front of the camera at some point to see how frightening it is, like to understand that when you're telling your actors to do this or that, like you should know how it feels to be that person with everybody's eyes on you and with all the kind of pressure on you to deliver a scene. So that was a great piece of advice for directors. But on this kind of inspiration tip, the thing that like the best moments in his speech were more like when he talked about like really, really believing in yourself, sounds so corny, but to hear it from someone who's that accomplished and basically he was very sort of like Gareth Edwards. He was so humble and talking about his own origins and his own beginnings and his own self-doubt early on. And the reason he started working with puppets in the first place is because he had such low self-esteem that he knew he wanted to like sort of express himself, but he didn't want anyone to like see him. So, you know, he could hide behind a puppet in order to express himself. And then it was four years into him working with Henson before he ever did a puppet, like a Muppet voice, because he just thought he'd be no good at it and didn't think anyone would want to hear him. And then there was like some situation where he was forced into doing a Muppet voice, like they just needed somebody. And everybody was like, oh, hey, you're pretty good at this. And he was saying like, I didn't think I could be funny, so I was just being loud. <laughs> and like, he's like, so I was loud, and it, I guess it worked. And then, you know, now, as we all know, he's like the voices that we like love, that are like huge parts of American culture and international culture. So he just kept hitting it home again and again to everybody. He's like, no matter how much you think you can't do something, like, just try it. And you never know. And it was really like I left there, you know, kind of floating on cloud nine, not just from like hearing one of my heroes, but from hearing one of my heroes say like, fucking go for it. Emily, what about you? I went to a different panel. It was extremely practical and it was more industry focused. Um, It was called Working in Production, A Tale of Two Career Paths. And those two career paths are kind of evidenced by the speakers. So there was Andy Stable, who is an an agent at ICM Partners. There is David Weika, who's um, the director of Full Screen Media. Ryan Hall, who works at Rooster Teeth. And Katie Pine, who directs BuzzFeed's motion pictures department. So what, what this panel was talking about was whether filmmakers should go the traditional route of trying to pitch to studios and television or whether it's actually more fruitful um, or there are advantages to completely going digital from the beginning. And um, there were pro- there were pros and cons to everything. And But the biggest takeaway from this panel was that there was a consensus among the, among the speakers that um, once you do one of them, it's really hard to switch over to the other one. And they were, especially the agent was saying his clients have a really hard time if they're great in web series, they have a really hard time landing a, a television show on cable if they um if if katie pine from buzzfeed's um video artists want to direct a regular movie and by regular i mean like you know full length theatrical release they have a hard time doing that um and everybody agreed that there were things to be learned from the other side of the fence and that it's really to everyone's detriment that nobody's willing to take a risk and uh, take a chance from somebody who hasn't had a, a track record in that in that specific path. So yeah, I think we can say overall, we had a great time and we've got so much 
awesome content coming up from this festival. Really, really strong stuff that I think you guys are going to love about all different aspects of filmmaking. And that's, you know, there's a bunch up already. There's going to be a bunch rolling out over the next week and a half or so. And of course, the podcast will roll out over the next couple months, which is really exciting. Every Monday, we have an interview podcast, as you know. First of all, thank you guys, um, Oakley, Emily, and John, for your hard work. You all at home um, don't necessarily know what it's like for us here at the festivals, although we try to convey that. But we are going from like 8 in the morning till 2 in the morning. Some people here are doing the drinking for that latter part. But um, we're really, you know, we're running all over town and trying to get a bunch of interviews and and really exciting stuff for you guys. And yeah, everybody here worked their butts off. So thank you. And of course, we got to thank Vimeo, who are, who were responsible for us being here. Um, they sponsored our South by Southwest coverage, and they were really helpful with the video that we actually put together about their new Vimeo 360 platform. That video is going to go up on the site this week. We got to go to a, an exclusive launch party and kind of see some of the special sauce that makes that product really exciting for filmmakers. And the very first South by Southwest interview podcast will be coming to you next Monday. So look out for that. Meanwhile, you can read uh, all of our South by Southwest coverage and everything we talked about the show um, and more at nofilmschool.com. As far as the podcast, we're so happy you joined us. So we hope that you'll subscribe and rate us on iTunes or whatever podcast platform that you prefer. And actually, we'd love to hear where you are listening to Indie Film Weekly. So hit us up with that info. Yeah. And if you listen to the podcast and you like it, tell people, tell your friends about it. Because, you know, I've a lot of people know No Film School, uh, uh, just going around talking to them at the uh, parties this week, but not too many people know that we actually have a podcast. So really, it, I had the opposite. Really? Of, yeah. A lot of people were like, oh, I recognize your voice from the podcast. So, yeah. Cool. Well, well, regardless, not everybody knows. And what you guys know is that the podcast is awesome. So spread the word, spread the love. It means a lot to us. Meanwhile, stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. At Yale Booter. At Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Yeah. Jim underscore Jim. What you got? <laughs> <laughs> Get me out of here. <laughs> Jim, 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 Jim. And true to the festival hustle, Oakley Anderson Moore actually had to leave us to go do one last interview before we get on the planes tomorrow morning. So stay in touch with her at Oaks Wagon. And we're all at No Film School. See you next week. <laughs>